right, let's get right to the Word of God. Um, we have been in our um, major characters of the Bible series all year long, and I have loved it because we have gone from Genesis um, all the way now. We are in the Gospels, and we are talking about some of the major characters of the Bible, and I think we have an infographic. We do. Okay, fantastic. So we used to have an, a, a one that was really detailed about the Old Testament. This is a was actually made for children, so it, it works for us really well. And it's creation. Um, then we have the patriarchs. That's that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is a generational God, even from the beginning. And then we see um, that the children of Israel go into bondage in Egypt. They become slaves, but God comes and rescues them and pulls them out of that, and that's Exodus. And so that's where we see Moses, Moses splitting the Red Sea, Moses and the Ten Commandments, all of that. And then we see conquest, and that's going to be Joshua, where the children of Israel go and they transform from being slaves to now conquering a land. And it's such an incredible story. Then we have the time of judges. Um, Israel was unlike any other kingdom. God allowed them to be ruled by judges that were appointed by God and anointed by God for a particular season. We also see the first and only female ruler that we know of of Israel during that time, which was Deborah the judge. And then the kingdom of Israel. Now, the children of Israel, if you'll remember, they asked for a king, and they didn't really like what they got, but they asked for a king, and so they had a season of kings, and those kings led them into deeper and deeper sin, and they eventually, God um, cleared the land, and they had exile where they were taken into captivity um, by some neighboring countries, but God remembers his people. God is a God who forgives, and God brings them back, and we see return. They return back to the land of Israel, and then we see within the Bible a time of silence. For about 400 years, there is nothing written in the Bible. And this is the time, if you ever go into history, where you're going to see the Maccabees and you're going to see other significant things within Israeli history, but it's not in the Bible. So we call it a period of silence because God is not speaking to us corporately during that time. And then we get into the New Testament, and right now we are in the Gospels. And the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's really interesting when you read the Gospels. I love to read the Gospels. I like to read the Gospels very quickly all together, and I like to read them con um, consecutively. Because now, if you have a phone on version, they have this awesome um, app called, called version, and they have these great reading plans. They're amazing. If you've ever gone, I don't know what to read, they will tell you. They literally will tell you, and they will send you a text to remind you. It's amazing. Sometimes it's a guilty text, you know. You're 101 days behind on your reading plan. Don't tell me that. But anyway, but you can look at the Gospels, and you can read them all very quickly. And the reason that I like to read them quickly is because they're a story. And we have to see it as that. Sometimes when we only pick a verse here and a verse there, we miss the story. Because this was a story about real people. That is what we believe as Christians. We believe that this is a story about real people and real things that really happened. And all of us know 
that if you just took a snapshot out of our lives, it would be incomplete. You need to know the whole story. And so tonight, we're going to talk about two very important characters that help us to understand a little bit more about Jesus' story, and that is the disciples James and John. The disciples James and John. So to give you a little bit of background on these disciples before we get into to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3. This is kind of some background on them. First, they were fishermen. Now, they were not like the fishermen we know, right? They were, they were fishermen. They had huge nets, and they would throw these nets out, and then they would pull them back in, and they would capture fish, and then they would spend a significant amount of their time cleaning, mending, fixing their nets, So these were guys who knew how to work really, really hard, and they knew how to be really, really consistent, and they knew how to look at the details, because if you didn't take care of your net every day, as a fisherman, that was going to affect your livelihood. And you may say, well, but Destiny, maybe they were bad fishermen. Well, actually, we know that they weren't. And the reason we know that they weren't is because we know that their family at least was somewhat successful and had some money. Because the Bible tells us at different points that they had servants. And only people who had some money back then had servants. So not only were they hardworking fishermen, salt of the earth, every day out there with their father. We see this when Jesus calls them. They're out on the boat. They're fishing with their dad. They're working hard. They're in the family business, but they're also somewhat successful. They've been somewhat successful at it. Um, They also have a very involved mother in their life. Very involved mother. And we'll get to that in a minute. But she's she's real involved in their life. Um, They're a team. Most of the time in the Gospels, when you hear them mentioned, you don't hear James and then, you know, John did this. You hear James and John. You know, have you, did anybody know people like that in your life? You know, like two sisters or two brothers who, who in your childhood you can look back and you go, were they ever apart? I mean, they just seemed like they were a team. You know those boys who just fight each other, but if you tried to fight one of them, they were both going to fight you? That's what I imagine that James and John must have been like. They must have been this incredible, wonderful team. They were brothers, but they were also in Jesus' inner circle. Isn't that a beautiful thought, Jesus' inner circle? Because, see, Jesus chose 12 disciples out of a larger group of disciples, but he spent a lot of time with three. And James and John were two out of that three. Let's go to Mark 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus has been teaching. He's been doing some different things. And he says this. He says, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and he called them his apostles. They were to accompany him and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. And these are the 12 he chose. Simon, whom he named Peter, James and John, 
the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. Don't you love that? Jesus picked his three. And those are the three. Peter, Simon, who he calls Peter. And then James and John, who he calls the sons of thunder. Jesus chooses his friends and he gives them nicknames. Don't you love Jesus? He chooses his friends and then he gives them nicknames. And that's what he calls them. He doesn't just call them what his mom, their mom had called them or their dad had called them. He calls them something else. And, you know, I, I think that sometimes we can think that God sees us the way everybody else sees us. That God looks at us and calls us the same names and the same things that, that maybe other people in our life have called us, much to our chagrin. But that's not true. The Bible says that God knows our name and that he has written our name on his palm. And I heard a preacher one day say that it's not just your name, but it's your true name. It's your true name. It's the name he calls you. It's his term of endearment for you. Because when Jesus came to earth, he only had a limited amount of time to live with a limited amount of people. And he had to be wise, just like each of us have to be wise, right, in choosing people to be with. And so he chose 12, and then he limited it to three. But when Jesus went back to heaven, and that veil, just as Philip Bussey was talking earlier, was ripped from top to bottom, instead of there only being three that could be in Jesus's inner circle. Instead of that, every one of us is invited literally into the holy of holies where we can all have an intimate relationship with Jesus. And that's so exciting because I read these stories of, of Peter and James and John getting to hang out with Jesus and I get a little jealous. What must it have been like to be in the inner circle? But then I remember, if I choose, that can be my reality because I can walk with the Holy Spirit every single moment of every single day. These were his family of choice, and we see why it's so incredibly important that he had this family of choice. In the same chapter, Mark chapter 3, in verse 20, it says this, One time, Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. You thought you had family problems. Verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And Jesus replied, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this is an interesting verse, right? Because Jesus is very big on us respecting our mother and father. He chastises the, the Pharisees about that. He says, you make up rules that allow you to give to God what you owe to your mother and father, and that's not allowed. I mean, that, that's intense. Jesus felt strongly about this. 
But at the same time, he was not willing to allow even his family to get in between him and his mission. And so in advance, he decided, I'm going to choose a family of choice that wants to be with me, that's going the places I want to go, that's building the kingdom in the way I want to build it, and that understands that this is important. And sometimes it's so important that I don't have time to eat, and that's okay, I'm not crazy. We have to have our own family of choice. It's a wonderful thing to have family, but we have to have our family of choice too. Some of you are in families where everybody is for you, and they're so excited, and if you just do the slightest thing, they cheer for you. I come from that kind of family. But some of you don't come from that. And you've had to learn how important it is to choose a family of choice that will support you in your mission to pursue the kingdom of God. And that's who James and John were. They were his family of choice. But in a twist, they may have also been his actual family. So the Bible indicates that very possibly their mom, Salome, was Mary's sister. Isn't that interesting? So it's possible, and some people say, is very probable that they were cousins. So I want to mention that it's important that your family can be your family of choice. And it's amazing when your family becomes your family of choice. But there's a lesson here for each of us. Just because your family, okay, doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you're going to have a seat at the table. Just because it's your heritage, just because your mamas, grandmamas, and your sister, and and, and all of them, they're all preachers, just because you grew up in it, just because you have the right verses on your wall, just because you have the background and the pedigree, that does not guarantee you a relationship of intimacy with Jesus, because you have to decide yourself that you're all in. We have to decide ourselves. I come from four generation of Pentecostal preaching women. Women, I did say that, women. Four generations. My great-grandmother met her husband, my great-grandfather, when she was street preaching on a corner, and he was leaning against a wagon wheel. I just think that's the best story. (laughs) Wagon wheel. I mean, who does that? Four generations. But you know what? Just because I have that heritage, that doesn't guarantee me a place at the table. That doesn't mean that, that I get some type of one up when it comes to the kingdom of God. I have to make a decision that, you know what, my number one priority is Jesus. Jesus be the center, not of my mom's life, not of my family's life, but of my life first. Here's some things that we need to know about their character. One, they were ambitious and competitive. Isn't that great? They tended to get into arguments about who was the greatest. So at one point, 
Um, at one point, uh, Jesus stops them as they're all talking on the way. And James and John are always just all up in the middle of this. And they're arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus gives this beautiful thing and says, look, I get that everybody else is worried about who's the greatest. But that's not what you're going to worry about. Instead, the greatest among you is going to be the servant of all. But they were. They, they were. they were very, very incredibly competitive, and um, they were also very ambitious. Their mom, maybe Jesus' aunt, maybe, literally came to Jesus and asked if they could sit at Jesus' left and right hand. I don't know about you. That sounds a little cheeky. I might be a little embarrassed if my mom did that. You know, I mean, here's your boss, your mentor, your discipler, your master. You believe he's the Messiah, and mama came and tried to make sure that you got a good seat in his kingdom. I told you, they have a pushy mom. It's fantastic. Jesus asked them this. He says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they just reply, yes, I'm all in. And sometimes I, I, I go, okay, you, you don't even know. And that's what Jesus basically replied to them. Look, you don't even know what you're talking about. But, but isn't it neat that they didn't even ask any questions? They just said, oh, you're going to drink it? I'll drink it too. Oh, you're in? I'm following you, so I'll do that too. Oh, that's what we're going to, okay, let's go. I don't know what we're in for, but let's just go. It may have been naive, but isn't it beautiful? Because so many times don't we do the exact opposite. We ask so many questions until the offer has passed us by. We hesitate so long until the person's gone. They said, yeah. And this is what Jesus said. He said, okay, you will drink this cup. But those places of honor that you're asking about, they aren't mine to give out. He rebukes them. He gives them a nice gentle rebuke. And that wouldn't be the only time. They were super hot-headed. Anybody know anyone hot-headed? Okay, so I'm just going to go ahead and confess right here before God and the Lord and everyone since Philip isn't here. I am not passive-aggressive. I am aggressive-aggressive. And last night, we had a fight that was epic. I'm talking about, like, for real. And I don't know why, but Philip always likes to irritate me right before I go to sleep. Anybody understand that? And, and then he irritates me, and we fight, and he goes to sleep. Because he's fine with it, you know? But I'm aggressive-aggressive. I'm still mad. I'm not done. I have more things to say. And so normally I just and I just go to sleep. But last night, I couldn't go to sleep, so I just decided that I would roll over and punch the bed until he woke up. This is your pastor. It's confession time. It's okay. Everybody loosen up. I'm human too. And I did. I successfully woke him up. And finally, he just looked at me. He goes, are you waking me up on purpose? And I said, yes, because I'm still mad, and I can't sleep. And he was like, why is that my problem? And I was like, because you made me mad. Hot-headed. These guys were hot-headed, too. 
I mean, they really were. They were incredibly hot-headed. Um, they, they found some people who were preaching Jesus' message and baptizing people, and they weren't connected to their group. And they're like, don't worry, Jesus. We got this. We shut them down. We called the copyright police. This is our message. They didn't do it right. They didn't have the right moves. They didn't have the right approval. Don't worry. We got this. We are the only ones. Because remember, they're competitive, and they're very possessive of Jesus. And they're hot-headed. They didn't even ask him in advance. They just went ahead and just took care of it. And Jesus said, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that because if they aren't against us, then they're for us. Let them speak. Let, it's okay. And so they get rebuked there. And then there was this time that, that this group wouldn't welcome Jesus. Now, remember, they're incredibly defensive of Jesus. We figured that out, right? You know, you're drinking the cup. I'm drinking the cup. I want to sit next to you, all of this. And there's a group that will not welcome Jesus. And they say, do you want us to call down fire to burn them up? Like, let's go. That is what I call being aggressive, aggressive. And Jesus rebukes them again. He says, no, that's not why I came. I didn't come to call down fire on all the people that irritate you and that come against you and that make me somehow not welcome. No, that's not my point. But, you know, sometimes can't we treat people who don't believe in our Jesus that way? I mean, really, yeah, I have a wonderful friend of mine, and, 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 and I have a lot of older friends, and, and she's been a Christian for a very, very long time, and it offends her to her core that people don't believe in Jesus. I'm not talking about, like, she, she kind of feels mildly about it. I mean, it offends her to her core. She's just offended. I cannot believe they don't believe in Jesus. You know? And she's like, I don't even want to feed them food. I don't want a meeting in my house. They don't love my Jesus. I don't love them. And I was like, hey, look, Grandma. I mean, I'm just kidding. Oh, sorry, Grammy. I hope you're not watching this. But anyway, I was like, look, you can't be like that, right? It's a, it's a good thing in us that makes us want to defend Jesus. It's a good thing in us that makes us want to stand for him. But we have to remember that he died for those people. That he died for those people. That he didn't protect himself. That he didn't stir, he didn't do that. And we don't have to somehow jump on the bandwagon and do for him what, I mean, haven't we rejected Jesus so many times? Aren't we so grateful that he still welcomes us into his home, that he still feeds us? The Bible says that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The Bible says that he gives sunlight to the just and the unjust. In other words, he doesn't just reject us because we're wrong and because of all of those things. He still loves us. We can be like James and John and we can want to call down fire on people. And Jesus is just going, I didn't call you to do that. I called you to love people. I called you to love people. And that was the revelation that later on these guys get. And, you know, Jesus is rebuking them. But we're talking about their character. And I think these are the two most important things about their character. One, Jesus liked them. Jesus liked them. Isn't that amazing? 
Wouldn't you like to be liked by Jesus? I mean, really, we all want to be liked, but liked by Jesus. You know, there were some people that Jesus didn't like. Jesus didn't like self-righteous people. Jesus didn't like those who were so religious that they forgot others. Jesus didn't like people who put burdens on other people that they weren't willing to carry for themselves. He did not like to be around those people. Now, he loved those people. He died for those people. But it makes it very clear in the Gospels he was not a big fan of hanging out with them. And he called them names. Just FYI, Jesus did that. Just so you know. Second thing is this. Jesus trusted them. Jesus trusted James and John. So Jesus liked them. Wait a second. Didn't we talk about all the things that they did wrong? I mean, wait a second. They were ambitious. And they were competitive. And they got into fights. And they had a cheeky mama. And they were hot-headed. And they wanted to call down fire on people. And they were exclusive. And they made all of these mistakes. And yet Jesus liked them. You don't have to be perfect for Jesus to like hanging out with you. And Jesus trusted them. They were around for significant events. Very significant events. Jesus invited them into rooms nobody else was invited into. They were privileged to be with Jesus when he healed Jairus' daughter. And when we say healed Jairus' daughter, he raised her from the dead. They got to be in that room. Can you imagine what that was like? And at the transfiguration of Christ where, where Christ literally takes on his heavenly form and talks to um, Elijah and to Moses. Yes. Yes, thank you, Clarissa, the Bible scholar on the front row. And so he talks, he takes on his form, and they get to see that. It's an amazing thing. They get to be in that room. He, he trusts them. He trusts them to hear about his death and his resurrection in Mark 13. He trusts them and says, hey, be with me during his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Ultimately, they failed, but they were invited to be a part. What an amazing thing to be trusted by Jesus. And they were trusted with secrets both during Jesus' time on earth and then later on, even in Revelation, John talks about secrets that he was given that he wasn't allowed to write down. Jesus trusted these men. And are we people that Jesus trusts? Are we people that Jesus can trust? Can he trust us with experiences outside of the ordinary and trust that it's not going to shake our faith? Can he trust us with secrets and that we're not going to use what we know about other people to be able to promote ourselves, but instead we're going to use them in the quiet closet of prayer to say, God, I know this situation. I know details that could blow this thing up, but Lord, I submit them to you. And I thank you that even though I know that you can trust me with a secret, can we be people who Jesus can trust. And, you know, I think the key to all of this is that they really were true believers. Man, they were true believers. I mean, think about it. They were asking for a place in a kingdom with Jesus when they were walking around in the desert on their mama's dime because they believed he was a king, because they believed that there would be a kingdom. 
That's how much they believed. They were jockeying for position for a kingdom that didn't even exist yet because they were that sure that it was going to exist. They were true believers. They were telling people to stop doing things because they saw Jesus as the ultimate authority. They were coughing to call down fire from heaven because they believed that Jesus had the power to do anything and that he was worth protecting. Even the things that they did that they got rebuked for are such incredible evidence of their belief. And this is what I think we can learn from James and John is that Jesus is willing to work with the raw material of belief, with the raw material of faith. He'll put up with our issues. He'll put up with our difficulties. He'll put up with our aggressive aggressiveness. He'll put up with the things, with the fighting, with the this. But when we have faith to believe, when we take those rebukes inward, when we change, when we allow him to shape us, when we stick around, I mean, goodness gracious, these guys weren't getting paid to hang out with Jesus. And Jesus is is turning them and rebuking them and correcting them. And they're not taking their ball and going home. They're not getting offended and saying, you know what? I think that that sermon just really, I don't agree with all of it. Some of it I don't. Some of it I believe that they used the wrong version of the Bible. And I just really, I didn't like it. And, and, or, you know what? That stepped on my toes. And they don't know my situation. And if they knew the rest of it, they would understand that that doesn't apply to me. Guess what? Nobody's trying to apply it to your specific life. That's the Holy Spirit rebuking you. The question is, are you going to keep showing up? It doesn't have to be here. Just in his presence and allowing him to change you and allowing him to talk to you and allowing him to still see you make mistakes. Aren't you glad that they kept showing up and making the same mistakes over and over again in Jesus' presence? I mean, they didn't just jockey for position once, y'all. They didn't just argue once, y'all. They didn't just let their temper get the best of them once, y'all. Jesus had to rebuke them over and over and over again, and they kept on showing up every single day saying, Jesus, my belief in you is so great, and if you're willing to stick with me, I'm not going to run away from you. Isn't that exciting? Because that's something that you and I can do. We can just keep showing up. We can keep showing up in relationship. We can keep showing up to group. We can keep showing up in church. We can keep showing up to the podcast. We can keep showing up in prayer. We can keep showing up reading the Bible. We can keep showing up and allowing God every time to kind of, you know, rebuke us a little. Because the mission is important enough for us to listen to everything that he has to say. These men were also changed by grace. You know, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. You know, I'm sure that nickname came a little bit from their aggressive aggressiveness. I can imagine they were really, really loud, don't you think? You know, maybe it was because of their clashes together, you know? Maybe they had that one or two fights that all brothers have, you know, that they just have over and over again. And yet, they really were sons of thunder for the kingdom of God. They saw incredible things happen. And by the time that John died, he was known as the disciple of love. From a son of thunder to a disciple of love. From going to miss the point. I mean, really, totally missing the point. Where's my seat, right? 
I'm the only one who gets to preach and pray in your name. We need to call down fire from heaven. Totally missing the point to writing the most inclusive statement of all of Christianity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, anyone, all the people who believe in him will have everlasting life. Can you imagine a bigger picture statement than that? But that's what happens. When faith comes in contact with grace, when faith stays in the place of the presence of God and allows grace to transform it and to understand that suddenly I don't have to be selfish anymore. I can be secure in my identity in Christ. I don't have to be angry anymore. I can rely on the vengeance of the Lord. I don't have to protect God and his name. I can just use his name to change the entire world. I don't have to be the master of everyone. I can be the servant of all and in that find an identity that's greater than any position or any salary or any role or any title or anything that the world has to offer. That's what happens when faith stays in the presence and comes into contact with grace. James was the first to die for Jesus. He was the first one of the disciples to die for Jesus. He was beheaded. And traditionally, it's thought that the jailer was so moved by his testimony that he converted and died with him. That's the legend of his, of his execution, is that that's how beautiful his testimony was. But his life was cut short. He wrote nothing. He wrote nothing in the Bible. The book of James in the Bible was not written by him. That, that actually was written by a completely different James. But he never had time to write. But John, John, he, he lived the longest of all the disciples. And he died still in the service of Jesus. He was able to write. He's credited with writing four books of the Bible. He's known as the disciple of love. He was exiled and tortured and persecuted for the sake of Christ. And you know, I think back to what Jesus said to them. What Jesus said but to them and he said, "You're going to you're going to drink of the same cup that I drank of. That that same cup of suffering that I that I drank of, but I also think back to their request to sit on the left and the right. If you lined up all the disciples and the order of their death. There you'd see James, right there on the left, first one. And there all the way to the right, you'd see John. And I don't think that that's a mistake. One, because I just love the Bible and I think that the details matter. Because even though they asked that out of ignorance, even though they asked that out of selfishness, they also asked out of great faith. A faith that said, Jesus, you will have a kingdom. You will have a kingdom. I know that nothing around says that it's true. But there is something in me that says that no matter what is around me, that it's true. And we can look at that as an example of foolishness. Or we can look at that as an example of Jesus saying, I can work with that. Yeah, they're a little raw. They've got some issues. But they've got great faith. And I am willing to work with that. 
John, you know, John and his gospel, um, the gospel of John, it's different than really any of the gospels. That's why we tell people who first become Christians or, or even who are first starting to read the Bible that we would like for them to read the book of John first is because it starts with a theology lesson and then gets into the story. And John talks about love so much in his gospel. I mean, that's all he talks about. He just talks about love. He calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. And sometimes we joke about that and say, man, you know, he's the only one who called himself the disciple who Jesus loved. Actually, there's other historical documents around the same time that also identify him as the disciple that Jesus loved. But I love it that he's the one in the Bible who says it. Because what faith? What faith? I'm the one he loves. Who does Jesus love me? Who does Jesus love me? Who does Jesus love? Definitely, I don't know about anybody else, but for me, I know he loves me. You can't talk me out of my identity as loved of God. Yes, I was there at the transfiguration. Yes, I was there when he raised a girl from the dead. Yes, I wrote four books of the Bible. Yes, I did all of these amazing things. But at the end of the day, the only thing you need to know about me is that I'm the one that he loved. And that's how I want to be. Isn't it how you want to be too? At the end of my life, I don't care what I've accomplished or what I haven't accomplished. If my life is cut short like James, I hope with all of my heart that I lead someone on my deathbed to Jesus. Or if I get to live all the way and outlive everybody else in my generation, I hope that my identity will be planted firmly in the cross, knowing that he did that for me, that he loves me, that he took me when I was raw, and that he put me in his presence, that he put me in contact with grace, that he didn't leave me there, and that he allowed me to become someone who knew that he loved me. Someone who knew that he loved me. See, John and James, they looked for acceptance in a position first. Jesus, let us sit on your right and your left. Jesus, let us be the guys, your bouncers. Jesus, let us be your fire bringers. Jesus, let us be all those things. But by the end, they had found their identity in his love. Will you stand with me? In the Gospel of John, it's really interesting because remember I said there was three of them. And we talked about Peter and Andrew last week, right? And Peter was the other one of the three. So it was Peter, James, and John. And we know there was a rivalry because it's in the Bible. And so when, when John writes the book of John, he brings up more of Peter's flaws than anybody. I mean, he tells more stories on Peter. There are stories on Peter that are in there that are not in any of the other gospels, but he tells them. He tells them in detail. He tells every ugly little bump of the road. And he even ends his book with a story of the interaction between Jesus and Peter. I was looking at that today, and I thought it was so interesting. Because 
on one hand, you kind of laugh a little bit and you think, man, John was sticking it to Peter, man. They still had that rivalry going. Then it kind of changed for me. And I thought, no, this was later in John's life that he wrote this. I think that he had just become so secure in his own relationship with Jesus that he was willing to tell the story of somebody else, to let somebody else be the center of the story, to to promote someone else's testimony, but not just that. I think that John knew that in Peter's story, we could see the grace of Jesus so incredibly clearly. That we would stand here in 2017 having failed Jesus, having sometimes denied him, having been hot-headed, just like James and John and Peter were, having done things that we weren't proud of, and that we needed to know that Jesus wouldn't just accept us back, that he wouldn't just forgive us, that he wouldn't just give us a place at the table, that he wouldn't just feed us again, that he wouldn't just let us be a part of the story, but that he also would give us a mission Because that's what he does to Peter at the end of the book of John. Jesus says, hey, now that you're back, I need you to make sure that you take care of my people. I need you to be really sure that your love for me translates into taking care of everybody else. Peter, I don't need you just to love me. I need you to love everybody else too. And today... We stand, we stand with a choice, a choice of identity and a choice of mission. Will we be like Peter, James, and John? Will we be like James and John and stand in the identity of love? Or will we seek for position? Will we seek for title? Will we seek for all of those other things? Those aren't bad things, but if they become our identity, no, no. And then over here, will we allow our love for Jesus and his love for us to change us so much that we can't help but turn around and give that same grace and that same love and that same... Because, you know, the truth is, we like being around easy people, don't we? And yet Jesus, when he was on earth, chose Peter, James, and John. Can we have the kind of love that Jesus had? to tolerate the rawness around us, to see the good, to see the faith, to see the potential, to stick around, to not send them away, to stay close. Can we be those kinds of people? Because if we can be those kinds of people, then creating Christ-centered culture change and community, then fulfilling the Great Commission, it can happen. It can happen. Will you bow your heads and shut yourselves away with God for just a moment? That just basically means close your eyes and think about God. God, right now we invite your presence because your presence changes us. We invite your presence. We thank you that it has been with us tonight, that it was here when we were singing and we were declaring truth over our lives. It was here when we were praying and we were lifting our burdens to you. And it's been here as we've been learning from your word. 
And Lord, I pray right now that your presence would invade every heart. God, I thank you for the faith and the belief that is in this room. The faith that causes us to walk back into a building and to worship a God we cannot see. God, I thank you for the faith and the belief that is in this room. Lord, I thank you that that you see that and you see our issues and you see our problems and you look at us and you smile and you say, I can work with that. I can work with that. Lord, I pray that right now that each of us would find security, would find our identity in you. Lord, I pray that we would continue on that journey of continuing to find our identity in you planting ourselves every morning and every afternoon and every evening in your love. Lord, may we go one step further as we are planted in your love. May we love others the way that you have loved us. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you say, Destiny, that message spoke to me. That message spoke to me. And I want to find my identity in being loved, first of all. My identity has been in some other things, but tonight I, I want to reaffirm, I want to reset, I want to restate that my identity is in His love alone. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around, if that's you, you say, I want my identity to be firmly planted in his love. Will you just raise your hand right now? Right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, you see every hand that's raised. And God, I believe that there's some people in here, they're choosing you for the very first time. And Lord, I pray that they would know that you accept them exactly as they are. That the faith that they have to raise their hand and to say, you are mine, that that's the faith that you need be a follower of Christ. Lord, I pray right now that a new revelation of your love would sweep us and would motivate us to give our love to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, 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 amen.